if you have your copy of God's Word there in front of you, I invite you to turn to the book of Colossians. Uh, we're making our way through the book of Colossians together as a college ministry on Wednesday nights. I'm excited to uh, continue to kind of press through. Uh, I've got a couple more weeks in chapter 2, this week and next week. And then we'll move to chapter 3 and continue to press on uh, through the book of Colossians all the way to the end. So uh, if you found your place there, Colossians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 15 this evening. If you would stand as we uh, read the word of God together. Uh, you know, it's important. I try to remind us of this often. One of the reasons why we read the Bible together is because any person who stands to preach or teach from God's word that doesn't read the Bible shouldn't be listened to. If a sermon doesn't come from the Bible, it's not worth listening to either. So, Colossians chapter 2, we'll read the word together and dive in. This is the word of the Lord. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Praise God. God that he has done this and this has been the word of the Lord and thankful that he preserved it so that we can rejoice in reading it together let's pray tonight father we come before you uh, humble and aware of our need uh, to read your word to sing to you to gather together in community and and father we we come before you yet again on another Wednesday night asking that you would meet with us and that you would minister to us from your word Father, we know that we're not alone in, in gathering. We know that there are other churches in the city, even tonight, that are gathering together. And we want to pray for them because we, we care for them. We want them to, to grow and we want them to spread the gospel and reach people that um, are within their uh, communities to reach. And so we think of the, the ministry of High Street Baptist Church and the pastors there. Think of Eddie Lyons and Tom Demers and... Jared Bone, and God, I just ask that you would watch over them, that you would protect them from the evil one, that you would enlarge their ministry, that they would proclaim and preach the gospel. We think of Second Baptist tonight and uh, just the difficulty and some of the trials that they're working through and trying to call a new pastor. God, we just ask that you would bring the right man to our city who would help us in reaching people in Springfield and around the world uh, for you and with the gospel. And Father, we are also keenly aware tonight. We've already prayed for our missionaries, but we're keenly aware that there are people who have never heard the message of the gospel. We think of the Fulani people in Senegal and the Kurds in Turkey. God, I don't know what my life would look like apart from hearing the gospel 
and repenting of my sins and trusting in you alone for salvation. God, I don't even want to imagine it, but tonight, in a, in a real way, we don't have to imagine what it would be like for those people where they've never heard the actual message of the gospel. So we ask that if you would see fit to raise up missionaries from our college ministry, from our church, to reach them, and even if it's not from here, that you would raise up missionaries to take the gospel to those people. And then, Father, as we turn our attention to your word tonight, we pray that it would cut on us, that it would show us who we truly are and who you truly are and why you are far greater than we could ever be without you. It's in your son's name we ask these things. Amen. You can be seated tonight. You know, in uh, 1965, the Rolling Stones debuted one of their most famous songs under the title of the word Satisfaction. Um, Shane and Stacy Johansson were probably there when it happened, singing along that they too can't get no satisfaction. And despite the grammatical errors that run throughout it, uh, the song has an enduring legacy. In fact, a few years ago, celebrated 50 years of enduring. And, and you have to recognize that in the world of rock and roll music, the fact that your song is still being sung 50 years after you wrote it is a pretty good way to live. But the, the song focuses on the fact that in every area of life, that um, Mick Jagger apparently can't get any satisfaction, whether it's with girls, whether it's in jobs, whether it's in society at large. It's just ironic because he's part of the Rolling Stones. So the irony is kind of lost on the audience as they're singing it, that here's a rock and roll band that's incredibly famous talking about not being able to get any satisfaction in life. But I think if we were to be honest, there are a lot of Christians who tonight would find themselves singing a similar tune. College students, young adults, even more so. That life isn't supposed to be like this. Or this isn't where I thought I would be right now in my life. I didn't think things were going to turn out this way. He didn't turn out to be the guy. She wasn't the girl. School's way more expensive than anyone told me it was going to be. And they didn't tell me how long I was going to have to be here. Or nobody told me how hard it was going to be to get a real job. And your tune tonight might be, for all intents and purposes, I'm not satisfied with this life. I think Christians are surprisingly susceptible to saying that. And I think a lot of the times the reason why that happens is because we're looking for something to satisfy us other than Jesus Christ. That as Christians, our eyes have drifted from what they're supposed to be focused on. Now, this isn't to diminish suffering or to say that if you're going through something difficult, that that's not going to come with life. This is the opposite of a health and wealth, name it and claim it type of theology, but I think a lot of us are tempted to grumble about where we might be in life. See, this is what drives at the heart of the Colossian heresy. We find ourselves with these Colossian, combating these Colossian heretics, and we're not careful. We could lose our way, right? We do this over and over throughout weeks, and we 
may forget that these Colossian heretics are promoting this kind of Gnostic, deeper, higher life type of understanding of who Christ is. And they're going to elevate spiritual rituals and practices to places where they're not supposed to be. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the same exact boat of finding or trying to find our satisfaction spiritually in practicing something other than what the Bible teaches or taking a biblical practice and elevating it to a wrong place. Legalists do this all the time. They find their satisfaction not in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in their ability to to keep and create rules to make them feel better than everybody else. I wore a coat and a tie. He didn't, therefore I'm better. I didn't go see that movie. I don't go see any movies. I'm better. I read eight chapters of the Bible. I don't even know that that person reads the Bible. I'm better. So there's a temptation to elevate certain types of spiritual practices to levels that the Bible never intends them to be, to try and get satisfaction of what it means to be a Christian. And then there's the other way. Call them, I like to call them the guys who are big on Christian liberty. Like, because of Christ, I can act like the world. I can, if you're not being cool and whatever is in the moment popular inside the world, Do you even know Christ? Because Christ has given you the freedom to do this. You see this all the time. You're tempted all the time to believe, hey, who cares if we go and watch this? Who cares if we go and do this? Who cares if we drink this or smoke this? I'm in Christ and I have the freedom to do it. And the pendulum swings the other direction. We're really good at capping the legalist. Because we know he's that. The guy who loves and expresses his Christian liberty to the abuse of the gospel, we have a harder time calling out because life tends to be a little bit more fun with him. And the Apostle Paul used a golfing analogy of all things, tries to hit the ball down the middle of the fairway and say, avoid being the person who abuses the gospel of grace, and also avoid being the person who's a legalist with it. Two things tonight that help us to recognize that Christ is enough, that he can be satisfying, that he is satisfying. Two things from this text. I apologize to all of you who want three-point sermons. I'm just not going to force us to get there. Um, If you're that person who's like, I really like threes, I'm sorry. I'm just going to focus on twos last week and this week. But first, if we're going to recognize that Jesus actually is enough, we first have to recognize that he completely saves. He completely saves. Remember, the temptation is to add something to the gospel as a means to declare yourself right with Jesus. And that's what the Colossian heretics are going to do. Some of you freaked out because you're like, wait a minute, we're in the New Testament And in the first verse, he says the word circumcision three times. This is about to get weird. Kind of wishing I would have stayed home. I hope that by the time we get done explaining this, 
you don't feel that way. Verse 11 says, In him you were also circumcised with the, with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here in verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul is going to address two problems that have come out of the Colossian heretics. One being their overemphasis on circumcision, and two, their overemphasis on baptism. It's really important that you understand and read all of your Bible, because you might find yourself in verse 11 going, what in the world is Paul, and why is he talking about circumcision? This is weird. We remember in the, when we read the Old Testament that part of becoming into, coming into God's covenant family, the necessary requirement for a Gentile to come into the covenant family of God in the Old Testament was through the means of worshiping Yahweh alone and circumcision. And here these Colossian heretics are bringing it back up saying, hey, look, like if it's good enough for the Old Testament, it's good enough for you and you must do it here. You got these Gentile believers all freaking out. Like, you got to do what? So here, the Apostle Paul takes some language to communicate his point about don't overemphasize and don't misunderstand circumcision. He says, in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Here, it's important to understand the allusions to the Old Testament. This is why we have to be full Bible readers as Christians. Because he says, here, you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. What's the opposite of without hands? It's creating something with hands. In the Old Testament, if we read through our Old Testament, every time that the Old Testament refers to something being created with human hands, what it's referring to is the making, the practice, and the appetite for worshiping false idols. So Paul's saying, your circumcision was made without human hands. The Colossian heretics... They're trying to take you to an idol. They've turned circumcision, a good thing in the Old Testament, into an idol now in the New Covenant. And here, the Apostle Paul is digging in and saying, don't be trapped by someone who's going to add something to your salvation. To think that by somehow you're a better Christian if you're circumcised post-Christ. Like the people who are better Christians because they carry a certain Bible translation. Don't be fooled by those people. You hear a lot of chatter about that. You got to read from this translation or you got to dress this way. Friends, be careful. The people who want to pull you away from Christ and focus on something minute. You can only come here and worship if you look like us, talk like us, dress like us, act like us. Paul is demeaning here, this idea. And I want you to understand something too. This may be the, the coolest thing that comes out of a text that is difficult to read and go, what in the world? Let's just skip over it because you know, we got time to talk about circumcision. No. 
I'm uncomfortable that you've said that word this many times during the sermon. Friends, it's biblical. Because here's what the trap is. The trap is by elevating circumcision, this practice over Christ, you're saying that the circumcision is better than what Christ has done. Do you know what the Apostle Paul's talking about here? He says, you've been circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. Like, what? Okay, we get it, Paul, you're brilliant. But now you've lost us. And it's because I think sometimes we're not careful Bible readers and we don't understand the difference between the circumcision of Christ. Christ's circumcision looks way different than human circumcision. Human circumcision takes a piece of skin and slices it off of the body. Christ's circumcision is way different in that Christ's whole flesh is cut off from the living. In his death, he's completely circumcised. And through his death and his burial and his resurrection, his circumcision, his death supersedes the Old Testament circumcision. So that it's not faith in God alone plus circumcision. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Christ is greater and better than every Old Testament law. The Old Testament law exists to point to our sinfulness. It's a mirror that reflects us accurately for who we are. But Christ is better and supersedes all of the law. Because in Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Everything that is lacking in the law to save you is fulfilled in Christ. Some of you are trying to save yourselves by the way that you live your life rather than by your faith in Christ alone. Remember, friends, I know it's not big in this part of the world, it's big where I lived and grew up. Catholics are all about faith in Christ. Their faith in Christ plus the sacraments is what saves you. So not getting into divorce, taking communion, regular confession, about four other sacraments, plus faith in Christ is what saves you. Remember, every October 31st, you celebrate Halloween, I celebrate Reformation Day, everybody laughs and makes fun of me, because Luther goes to the church in Wittenberg and reminds the Roman Catholic Church that it is not enough for faith in Christ plus the sacraments to save you. It's faith in Christ alone. He recovers the book of Romans and he reads it and he goes, oh my, we've been doing this wrong. I think Christians, evangelical Christians, fall into the same trap. They just church it up. You know what that expression church it up means? It's where you, you tell a story that's bad and you try and clean it up a little bit. So, Or you try and emphasize something the right way. You went out and fell down on the ground because you slipped on a piece of ice. You churched that story up. You were running away or running to help somebody who was in a burning building. You slipped on a piece of ice. You couldn't help them. This is what we try and do. We try and church up what it means to follow Jesus. 
And we do it in a subtle, the subtle humble brag that follows so many Christians around as they talk about what it means to follow Jesus. They don't struggle with that like you do. Or I did this at church. Or I'm involved in this ministry. Or I do this thing. Just trying to serve the Lord, you know. What's up? Just trying, trying to give him his glory. And in our ways of promoting our own hearts and promoting our own religious activities, we look more like the Colossian heretics or, God help us, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are debating about how far you can go on the Sabbath. Debating about what you can do with food on the Sabbath with Jesus. And Jesus reminds them, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. You need to find your fulfillment in me. And their response is crucify him. And it's amazing because I think the same thing happens in churches today. Where a person says it's not about how much you look like a Christian. It's not about how you dress or what you wear or what Bible you read or how much of that Bible that you read. It's about that your faith is placed in Christ alone. And the church turns around and says crucify him. Because I see it all the time. Go to meals with students. A student tries to turn the conversation towards Christ. And his friends say, crucify him. Friends suggest that maybe we shouldn't go see something. We should live godly in this present world. Crucify him. And here the Apostle Paul is reminding the Colossians, don't elevate spiritual rituals to places that they were never intended to be or even serve at. Which is why he turns his attention in verse 12 to baptism, which the Colossian heretics were saying. And this is, again, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon tells us that in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's nothing new in the sun to say that there's a group of people that suggest that baptism is part of your salvation. That until you're baptized, you're not actually saved. Friend, if you're here tonight and you've been told that, I can just tell you right now, the Bible doesn't teach that. The language that the Apostle Paul uses here, he reminds them that baptism, he says, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him, that means Christ, from the dead. Baptism is never an extra merit of grace or a confirmation of your salvation. It is merely, and I say merely because sometimes we can get real weirded out about what's taking place in the baptismal waters. But merely what is taking place is this is a sign of what's already taken place in the heart and the life of the person being baptized. Baptism, in the way that Paul is using it here in Colossians chapter 2, is to signify the metaphor that baptism plays in the life of a Christian. And that metaphor is a post-salvation symbol of what has already taken place in conversion. Look at verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. As the person is immersed under the water. Remember, baptism, baptizo in the Greek, means to immerse. So we're putting someone completely under the water. Not sprinkling him. Notice when we read the book of Acts, that as uh, the Ethiopian eunuch comes to saving faith, he doesn't say, oh, here is but a little water. What hinders me from being baptized? But rather is immersed in the water. 
And again, it's important to recognize early Anabaptists pour water over top of people. But the picture of baptism is buried, just like we're buried, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, which oddly enough Paul's going to refer to later in this passage, in which you were also raised with him, meaning just as Christ comes out of the water, just as Christ is pulled out, as we're pulled out of the water, Christ comes out of the tomb, we're picturing resurrection, a new life in Christ is what's happened. And here's how we know it's past. This isn't something that saves you. In the working of God who raised him from the dead, the work of God has already been accomplished before we ever put one pinky toe in the water. Again, I want to pause here because Baptists aren't always great about explaining baptism, which is odd. It's kind of our name. It's what we're known for around the block. It's what we should be known for. As we put someone in the water, what we are saying is this person has testified to the fact of their knowledge of Christ in repentance and faith. And is that this is an outward sign of an inward change. Which means nothing saving takes place in that baptismal water. But it also means that it is possible for someone to get into the water, to go under the water, come up out of the water, and be just a wet sinner, unregenerate. I think a lot of times we think, well, they profess Christ, they're baptized, they must be saved. Friends, this is incredibly important why we ask our friends to tell us how they came to know Christ. For them to share their testimonies with us. For us merely not to just take someone at their word and go, okay, let's take them up there and dunk them underwater. Because friends, what a tragedy. And I want to say this with the utmost sincerity right now. What a tragedy to give someone false assurance of conversion because we've merely gotten them wet. It's also important not to elevate that spiritual practice above and say something saving is happening here. I want to ask you tonight, are, are, are there ways that you're adding to the gospel? I'm not saying, well, I, you got to get saved, but you also have to do this and this and this and this. This comes in in subtle ways, and we need to guard our mind and heart as we think about how someone actually comes to saving faith. And remind ourselves that nowhere in Scripture is there a delineation of it's Christ plus these activities. But rather it's self repentance and faith in Christ alone that produces certain spiritual activities. That fruit is the production of a regenerate heart, not the requirement of one. So I think sometimes we have people who genuinely believe themselves to be converted, hate reading the Bible, hate prayer, hate going to church, but think that by doing those activities, plus some sort of testimony of something that happened in their life is what is going to save them. Friends, your spiritual activity does not save you. It rather is the production of the work of Christ in you. Second, 
we see that not only does Christ is Christ enough because he completely saves, but he also completely frees. Look at verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwritten handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken them out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's important to remember prior to conversion where you stood with God. And friend, tonight, if you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, after repenting of those sins and placing your faith and trust in him, you are in this spiritual condition, dead. You may be alive tonight, but if you've never trusted in Christ, you are spiritually dead. D-E-D dead not kind of dead not slightly dead it's ironic we never bury partially dead people one only has to think of the great cinematic adventure of Monty Python and the Holy Grail bring out your dead bring out your dead I'm not dead yet and then they hit him over the head with a club. And now you're dead. We're not suggesting that you're kind of in a bad spot prior to conversion. But you are completely dead. And Christ is the rescuer. Don't give yourself too much credit here. Christians all the time are willing to take far too much credit for their salvation. Jonathan Edwards is so helpful here. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that wakens the heart to place their faith and trust in him. There is divine sovereignty and there is human responsibility. Be careful, friend, to not give yourself too much credit here. Notice what Christ has done in making you alive tonight. If you're in Christ, he has made you alive together with him. He's forgiven all your trespasses, all your sins, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, or he's canceled your debt. Christ has wiped out the certificate of debt that was in our name. The Greek lexicon is incredibly helpful here. We talk about canceling your debt, wiping out your debt. We kind of get that. But the word that's translated wiped out means to cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence. Christ has obliterated the evidence of the sinfulness of who you are when you stand before God. Because he imputes or he puts on his righteousness to you, so that when God sees you, he sees Christ's righteousness, not your sin. Whew, that is amazing. Friend, tonight, you don't have to worry about spending eternity separated from God forever. Because Christ has provided the means by which 
you can be saved. Repentance and faith in Christ alone can cancel your debt. He has taken it out of the way. He's taken it out of the way. He's taken it far away. He's nailed it to the cross. You know, hymns have fallen on bad time, unfortunately. For whatever reason, our generation is inclined to believe that we're smarter than the people who came ahead of us and have served the church for 300 years. I just want to remind you of a line from a Horatio Spofford hymn tonight. You may go, who? Who cares? Listen to the words. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. If you're in Christ tonight, he has taken your sin debt. He's nailed it to the cross. He dies. He's buried. He rises again to forgive you of that sin. And your sins are forgotten. But Satan comes along and he brings up that memory. You say, no, no, that's been nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. I carry it no more. Some of you are living under the trap of your previous sins. You've repented, placed your faith and trust in Christ. You've confessed that sin to Christ again and again. And you can't seem to get out from underneath the weight of it. You don't bear it. It's a fake weight. It's a fake weight. This particular text is incredibly encouraging because I think we're discouraged by the sin that easily besets us. We're not discouraged because we keep falling into the sin. We're discouraged by the guilt that comes with it. Friends, we need to turn our discouragement away from the guilt to the actual sin, put it to death and rest in Christ alone. Because Here's the greatest encouragement tonight. Verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing. Triumphing. Wow, that word is hard tonight. Over them in it. He's triumphed. He's greater. He's vanquished it. Remember, friends, Christ is there with Pilate. Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. What would you have me to do? And the people cry out, crucify him. And Pilate says, I can't believe you want to crucify him. He goes over to a water basin, washes his hands, and he says, my, it's a symbolic, and he says, this, his blood is not going to be on my hands. And they send him up to Golgotha's hill. And the people have cried, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Unless you think you're holier than thou, that you are Johnny Super Christian, who in the moment would have come out on the stage and cried for Christ's innocence, friends, you would have been in the crowd alongside of me yelling out, crucify him. But a temptation to think of ourselves wrongly in the biblical text 
So up Golgotha's hill he goes. On a cross he's laid out. Nail-pierced hands, nail-pierced feet. Up he goes to die. And about the 12th hour, the sun goes dark, the ground shakes. Christ yells out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then gives up the ghost, meaning he dies. And in that moment, in that moment, all the principalities and the powers and the evil rulers of the day and Satan and all the people rejoice because they finished it. later the hymn writers say up from the grave he arose with a mighty power of his foes he has conquered death he has conquered the grave and most importantly he's conquered sin and he's made salvation available the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient but the blood of the sinless son of of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ is sufficient. He's disarmed the principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle over them. He took the thing that was meant to cause him the most harm, agony, and shame, and turned it around and turned it into the very thing that sets you and I free. Free from sin. And next week we're going to talk about what it means to put that sin to death. But you can't put sin to death until you've first come to life in Christ. So tonight I want to challenge you. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, that you, friend, that is your greatest need tonight. You say, Jacob, you say it every week. A lot of us in here know Christ. Beloved, I'm not foolish enough to think that in a room like this, that there's someone here who does not legitimately know Christ. They've never genuinely put their faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Even now, some of you have been potentially, I don't know, I'm not speaking for God. I'm not the Pope or playing someone who thinks he's the Pope. But maybe perhaps tonight, even as you have sat here, the Holy Spirit has begun to convict you of the fact that you genuinely don't know Christ. Friend, don't ignore that. Settle that. Then when you settle it, Live for Christ and we turn our attention to that in the coming week. But beloved, those of us who know Christ, who are in Christ, we should celebrate tonight. Not our salvation as if we saved ourselves, but the fact that Christ has saved us and has made us alive. So when we sing tonight, we think about Christ. Our song should be maybe a little bit louder. The pep in our step a little bit higher. Because we understand what Christ has done. That should drive us in worship. How can we who've been made alive in Christ not worship him gladly and boldly? Let's pray.